Welcome in, everybody, to Current Events with Max and Colborn. My name is Max Cohen. I will be one of your hosts today. And join me as he does for every episode of the Current Events podcast, the founder of the Museum of Crypto Art, Colborn Bell. Colborn, how are we finding you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Max. Wonderful. I'm happy to hear that. And I'm doing well as well. We're excited because this is the first episode of our four-part mini-series on the foundational texts of crypto art. So if you've ever come to the museumofcryptoart.com website, there's a writing section, which has all of the stuff that we've written in the past, but it also has a section about the foundational text of crypto art. These are things that we've chosen as a collective to represent why we think the ethos of cryptocurrency, blockchain, and crypto art have all kind of developed. So over the next four episodes, we're going to go in depth on uh, one of these foundational texts per episode. So we are starting with, I think, perhaps the most important text in terms of the influence on crypto today. And that is Eric Hughes's Cypherpunk Manifesto from 1993. Eric Hughes was a mathematician and a computer programmer and this self-proclaimed cypherpunk, um, one of the founders of that movement. And the Cypherpunk Manifesto goes into a lot of detail about why privacy and encryption is so important. And a lot of that ethos would be contained in um, Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin uh, experiment when he released it in 2009, January 3rd, 2009. Regardless, uh, I wanted to start with a quote from this, which I think is it's the quote that begins the manifesto, and it's as important as anything. Privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age. Privacy is not secrecy. A private matter is something one doesn't want the whole world to know, but a secret matter is something one doesn't want anybody to know. Privacy is the power to selectively reveal oneself to the world. And I think that's a great place to start a conversation about crypto and about crypto art, where provenance and openness of information is so vital. So, Colborn, I'm curious, where did you first come across this text? I honestly can't recall. Um, it seems to have always, almost always been there. I know I received uh, a, a wonderful art piece from cypherpunk now who is uh just a, a bitcoin artist in every sense of the word uh mm. beautiful beautiful print with you know these people masked up uh and it you know it says a cypherpunk manifesto i doubt it was there that i first came across it but finding cypherpunk now's work was certainly a return um to this ethos well, since I've been involved in Mocha, this has been a text that's been presented to me time and time again. I We wrote about it at some point um, last year a little bit, but I find myself coming back to this maxim that privacy is the power to selectively reveal oneself to the world because on its face, that seems to be at odds with, at least in crypto art, how we deal with provenance, right? Something that is so near and dear to the crypto art movement and so important to it is the free and open access to information, right? You don't have the power to selectively reveal information. What you do have is the privacy or the power to selectively reveal yourself and how much yeah. of yourself to the world because you're behind these wallet addresses. Or as we've seen many times, uh, like in our conversation the other day about whether Punk6529 is a person or a collective, uh, you can hide behind digital assets. So I'm curious what this 
quote specifically means to you, right? And especially in your experience with crypto art, like selectively revealing oneself to the world. How in your eyes does crypto and blockchain allow you to do this? Well, let's let's begin to put this whole thing in context, right? This was released March 9th, 1993. You know, the internet was was young and perhaps coming up, emerging, probably a similar position to, you know, where cryptocurrency might have been in a place like 2017. So, and think of how much has changed since 1993 to now, you know, uh, obviously it was a different world post 9-11 uh, in which, you know, the, the government continued to erode and intrude on an individual's right to personal privacy. Yeah, the Patriot Act, which I believe was 2002 and signed into law then, basically allowed the government with any kind of quote-unquote reasonable cause, even though that reasonable cause, or maybe even without reasonable cause, I don't think you needed a warrant. I think that was the, that was the big sea change, was without a warrant just for issues of quote-unquote national security. You could wiretap, surveil, get bank records, things like that. And that has not been repealed, I believe, as far as I know. Yeah. And, you know, since then, we've also seen the U.S. go into places like Switzerland or, uh, you know, the Cayman Islands and various other small island nation tax havens and begin to demand financial transparency. You know, a lot of this under the the guise of pre pre preventing terrorist funding, um, anti-money laundering, uh, making sure everybody knows their customer or counterparty. Uh, and, you know, in many ways, cryptocurrency is and can be a repudiation of this intrusion. Uh, mm -hmm. You begin to look at the first use cases for... Bitcoin, uh, and it's, you know, it's really not much of a surprise that, you know, the Silk Road was the first large prominent use case other mm -hmm. than, you know, kind of like uh, trading magic cards on, on Mt. Gox. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when, when you begin to think of trustless international things that, that can be traded, um, you know, and then further developments, Zcash, Monero, Dash, what does it mean to have a, a privacy? Um, it, these, these were some of the earliest innovations and is uh, really just inherent and, and baked in to crypto philosophy, the right to selectively reveal oneself. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we see from this text and i encourage everyone to read it in full uh it's pretty short and it, it really does kind of put in a context a lot of what the ethos of crypto culture in general would become throughout the late like 2010s which would then of course trickle down into early crypto art culture and remain that way to this day i mean there's there's one quote here we cannot expect governments corporations or other large faceless organizations to grant us privacy out of their um benefic beneficence so put that aside for a second and think about crypto art as a movement, right? It is inherently distrustful of big actors. I mean, we're seeing this happen in real time with OpenSea. Every time OpenSea takes any step that makes it clear that it's a business first and not person first, it is met with huge criticism. Um, at least in the circles of crypto art that I run in, OpenSea has become kind of a joke. And I think it is kind of like the poster child for this conglomeration of business power that 
all of crypto seems to kind of be wary against. I mean, it's this interesting dichotomy, right? We spoke the other day about um, the Bitcoin spot ETFs from Grayscale and BlackRock, these enormous hedge funds. So there is at once a desire to see more institutionalization or institutionalized acceptance of cryptocurrency, but that seems to be at odds with this very um, pro-individual, anti-authoritarian ethos that's in the movement itself. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the roots, as I see it, of like trash art itself um, as one of like the foundational like sub-movements within crypto art as just wanting to tear down any semblance of centralized control over what is art, what can be art, what constitutes art, et cetera, et cetera. So here's another wonderful piece of context that I have just learned in the last 60 seconds of Googling um, is that in the early 90s, uh, a professor at Berkeley, uh, Daniel Bernstein, which I believe is where Eric Hughes was a professor, mm -hmm. uh, berkeley.edu, released um, an encryption software that required him <laughs> the the u.s government had designated encryption software as a munition so this required him to register as an arms dealer <laughs> uh and this led to the landmark case bernstein versus department of justice which established code as free speech now you know if if you go what it was it at this point maybe a year and a half ago you will remember that the U.S. government arrested, and I believe is still detaining, the programmer of Tornado Cash. Sure. And, you know, so again, when, when you begin to think of the freedoms that are afforded us, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it is, it is certainly, you know, not out of the government's uh, beneficence that we are afforded privacy. Yeah, it makes sense. We have to take it for ourselves. Um, but I, I want to come back and explore your thoughts on this dichotomy between not having information be, I mean, information being completely available, but also being like selective in its sourcing. I mean, we do this all the time when we go on this podcast and we try and, you know, do our very amateur, like uh, ether scan sleuthing to figure mm -hmm. out where, you know, these pieces have come from or where they're being held by or how they've transacted. And it's very interesting to, at the same time, have access to all of these records and, on another point, not being able to decipher it because one node in the chain of transactions is still completely anonymous or completely um, like unpublicized. And I don't know, it's, it's just such an interesting dichotomy to explore that like we so value openness and uh, publicizing of information, and yet we are at the same time very protective of anonymity and the very like specific amounts of what we've done, who we are that we're protecting. Mm. I mean, I, I interview anonymous folks all the time, both on the show and for, you know, pieces. And it's very interesting when, you know, you're having these conversations with people who you don't know their face. Um, you might know their voice, but you know, you don't know their name. You don't know where they live. I mean, some of the most vaunted figures in all of crypto are, when we were talking about X copy the other day is, this like amalgam of information we know, we know so many things about, you know, we, we can see all the Tumblr posts that Xcopy was posting back in 2011 and 2012, right? We can see this really detailed look into this person's brain, but we don't know their name. We don't know where they live. We don't know how old they are, but we just know kind of the aura. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, no, I, I get that. I'm under, you know, it moves kind of, obviously it moves alongside street artists and the feeling that, you know, you need to maintain anonymity in an activity that is, you know, certainly legally uh, gray or, mm -hmm. you know, depending on jurisdiction, because this really, you know, again, as in kind of the arresting of the tornado cash developer or in this guy having to go and register his code as, an, an, you know, a munitions, um, <laughs> the government exists as this big amorphous entity that, you know, can selectively choose to screw you over if it wants or, you know, <laughs> let you exist under its dominion. Um, sure. You know, that's why so many people obviously get charged with like RICO cases when there's nothing else to throw at them because what was it? I heard this quote, you know, if you put like a cop on somebody's tails for, for 500 miles, you know, they're going to end up with a ticket. Interesting. Yeah, of course. Um, that was the bane of my existence in New Jersey. This is neither here nor there, but in, uh, <laughs> I, I know a little bit of a digression, but in New Jersey, which has these really draconian, like early driving laws for like recent, uh, licensed teenagers, you're supposed to put a red sticker on your license plate front and back to denote to the world that you're like an underage driver, you still have a probationary license. And inevitably you would end up just being tailed by police officers for however long, because that was exactly what they were trying to doing there. Or that's exactly what they were trying to do. They were waiting for you to slip up and make a mistake, which you obviously would because you've been driving for six months. Um, and if you have this, uh, sticker you're not supposed to be out past 11 so it like again just denotes your age and identity and there was all of this hubbub because people thought correctly that predators and predatory figures would just follow kids around which of course they did but again a little bit of a, um, a digression what further excites me about this text is the idea you know that information does not want to be free but that it longs to be free yeah and in this i i really group uh digital art culture and just all of expression right there is this inherent yearning to make it free uh and you know whereas so much of the contemporary art world is cult of the artist it doesn't really matter what you know some figures put out at any point it's really just the name behind it mm -hmm. um this you know, gives people the ability to weave in and out of identity and let the expression stand perhaps more independently from the individual. And I think like this idea that information not only longs to be out there, but it longs to be known, right? There's a reason why first mover advantage is such a big deal in crypto in general and crypto art specifically. Um, that doesn't matter in the traditional art world at least it hasn't mattered as far as i've known outside of like um leon Knowles and ken Harmon's um abstract nude that they did in the late 60s where this is the first example of computer art like something like that just because they're using the technology for the first time in that way but it's not like they're the most famous digital artists of all time whereas mm -hmm. in crypto art being the first to engage in a new technology or uh, engage with a platform et cetera, et cetera. Like these things really matter. And perhaps it's because mm -hmm. that information is not only open, but it's rare information in its own right, right? Being the, the super rare Genesis token, which I believe was X copy. It I, was Robbie. It was uh, Robbie, sorry. Uh, Robbie Barrett, that is. But next was uh, X copy. 
Well, the, even so, like being within these first couple records of, of uh, super rare um, Genesis pieces minted on the platform, like that's rare information of itself. And the piece itself comes along with all that information. I mean, that's like the beautiful thing. We talk all the time about context and how important context is in crypto art more than just the image itself. And it's because like you, I think you said this the other day, there's going to be so much, so much imagery, so much, so much aesthetic output because of AI that what becomes rare and sought after about these pieces might very well be the information that they in, are that are that is encoded within their smart contracts. Yeah, yeah, and you know, at the same time, just as there there was X copy and there was Robbie who subsequently walked away as well, there were other people in those first hundred tokens that. I could probably say their names and, and a lot of people out there would have no idea. Like who? Oh, probably like Paulius Uza, you know, obviously somebody like Killer Acid did well, Hakatau did well. Maybe maybe people don't know about Travis Leroy. I, I believe those were all artists that were in the first hundred on Super Rare. And of course, Super Rare was not the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we lost, you know, many platforms along the way and you know we never give kind of the appropriate props to the the dada artists uh who seek you know neither recognition nor nor attention yeah yeah but they were there yeah Yeah. absolutely so uh, another quote i think is really important to understanding crypto art and crypto in general is the following and this is how the uh, manifesto ends. It says, our code is free for all to use worldwide. We don't much care if you don't approve of the software we write. We know that software can't be destroyed and that a widely dispersed system can't be shut down. And mm-hmm. I want to use that to talk about CCO because mm-hmm. since I've been in crypto art, which was late 2021, this question of CCO artistry has morphed from kind of a strange stylistic choice to being kind of expected from a lot of artists or at least it's expected that people's imagery will be utilized in uh, homages and in remixes and things like that um i'm not sure which i know we keep coming back to x copy but i believe it was x copy's right click save as guy uh, which sold for seven million to cosmo de medici i think late 2021 as well or early mm-hmm. 2022 mm-hmm. where there was a an agreement within the purchase of that piece that cco uh copyright you know, rights would be waived for all future um, permutations of that artwork. And we've seen that explored in all sorts of different ways. There's constant like homages to right click save as guy that are just being created and minted on every blockchain. Um, we saw it with Robness, who I believe just minted right click save as guy again. Um, he did, and that's yeah. With, yeah, and that's within the bounds of what's allowed. So I'm curious, like just your opinion on CCO and why the right to use other people's artwork to remix it to, you know, claim it as one's own to a certain extent, why that is such a powerful and well-protected tenant within crypto art. Because it's it's kind of a tech tenant and it definitely is a, is a crypto tenant, but you know, the promise of the information and you go back to the, the techno optimist manifesto is that you reduce the cost of everything effectively to zero. So there is more access for people to consume, right? I think this has analogies to what uh, Kazaa and LimeWire did to the music industry, which was tightly gated and people were running to Tower Records and paying 20, I don't know, 15, $20 every time a new CD came out so they could have access to 
that information. I'm, I'm going to continue to use like information, art and culture analogous or uh, interchangeably because, because that is what the internet does. It flattens the medium to zeros and ones where we are reducing the cost of this cultural transmission to zero. So, you know, you can recognize that it's going to be taken, it's going to be stolen, it's going to be used without your permission, and you can either give up control of that, right? Or you can, you know, it's it's almost a step backwards to say that, like, I am going to <laughs> regain control because, frankly, once it's out there, it's out there. Um, you know, again, Dogecoin is just a fork of Bitcoin. Tron copied whatever it is, 80% of Ethereum. Crypto is founded on forks and copying and pasting, you know, and just bringing it to new networks. There, there are flashes of brilliant innovation that get taken, stolen, copied, and diluted down to zero. And that is just the nature of the technology that, that we're dealing with. And it's what spurred the whole idea of like right-click save as, which you know I still have to fend off when I talk to people about crypto art. The idea that yeah. like, well, why can't I just own this myself? And it's like, well, you kind of can. But again, that's what we've been talking about, right? The aesthetics are not what is important here. It matters the information that's attached to it, who it came from, whose hands it passed through, how much money it was purchased for at any given time, when it was created. All of these things create a context around any given artwork that are more important. I'm, I'm happy to say they're more important than just the aesthetics in a vacuum. I'm the kind of person at an art museum. I like to go glance at the painting and then go read all you know the little blurb about it they have on the side and then come back to the painting. I want to see mm -hmm. when it was made, who it was made by, what country they were from, uh, any you know um, contextualized information about it because that's where so much of the meaning comes from. It's one thing to, you know, look at um, a Monet water lily. And then it's another to understand that he painted you know, water lilies exclusively for the last years of his life. And there are so many permutations of it. You need to know the context. And the beauty of the system that we have is that the context is irrepressible. Uh, it's a dedicated part of the tech itself, which is interesting because the pieces Unlike the people, the pieces don't have the option of privacy. The things that are minted on the blockchain are forced to be open, um, but it's the people who do the minting and kind of the people who are responsible for them. They're the people who are protected on the back end. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really, you know, beautiful and powerful thing. And on the flip side, it's, <laughs> it's frightening how, you know, growing up, it felt like privacy, you know, was a right and now it feels almost like a, a privilege, you know, I, I just, I, I, you know, I remember this is really weird, but I just, I remember going out in New York city, uh, 2006 to 2010 smartphones were kind of coming online, but, you know, people were able to, I guess, perhaps party more freely because not everybody had like an HD camera attached to their hip. Yeah, uh, you know, we had black, we were doing Blackberry Messenger and nobody was really taking pictures uh, like that. So, you know, in public, yeah. you, you no longer really have a right to privacy because everybody has the ability to capture and, and share that information so readily. 
Yeah, this reminds me of a, of a again another digression, but interesting story. There's this guy who's semi-famous in Brooklyn bars. He wraps himself in a like area rug, and he just lays there, like at the foot of a bar, and that's what he does. He, he, there was an article written about him. People just like step on him, and that's like kind of the part of it. And it's not like a performance, and from what I understand, it's not like a sexual thing. It's just this thing that this guy does. And there was an article written about this very strange gentleman and it was talking about his presence throughout New York's like bar scene or the Brooklyn bar scene uh, in the last like 20 years or so. And I remember there was this thing talking about how this guy was like an urban legend back at the time when, you know, you would be at a bar and I think the article quoted or mentioned Drew Barrymore. It was like Drew Barrymore could be at a bar taking her top off and nobody would know because all that information was in that bar. And now you have to be so much more careful where you're seen because everyone in the world is going to see you there. Right. Which, of course, is why we are so fervent in our belief in blockchain, especially as like, you know, it's not just about where you actually are. It's about all the places you're perceived to be. Um, And with AI only becoming more powerful, you you said it like deep fakes are going to be it's exclusively going to be deep fakes on the internet in you know x amount of years and we're not going to know who's who and who's where and again the aesthetics are going to stop mattering and it's only going to matter the information that you're choosing to share no i couldn't have been in this place i couldn't have been saying this thing because i was here here's the record of where i was and i'm choosing to share that with you yeah or even you know i didn't make this art it's, sure it's cryptography ensures you know authentic verifiable and provable provenance from you know real creators so somebody can you know you can always associate that address with yourself and anything committed to that address you have to you know presume is is an act of that person right think of uh just you know we will i believe we will demand that you know the outlets like the associated press produce authentic and verified videos as real from them you know Mm -hmm. this goes so much wider uh than, than what we know, but we need to know that, you know, the information that we're receiving is in fact, or the speeches that we're hearing from any political is in fact a real thing that they did. Context, baby. It's just interesting that privacy, I believe, is going to start to be used as an offensive tactic instead of a defensive tactic. Mm-hmm. You're going to start not just selectively wielding or you're going to use your privacy and not just to selectively reveal yourself to the world, but to aggressively confirm yourself to the world, Mm. uh, which is quite a sea change from where it's been. But, well, you know, and just real quick, just like a couple other interesting questions. What happens? um, You know, the, the last kind of bastion of privacy for governments is cash. Uh, So what happens if they move to a central bank digital currency um, what are the implications of something like WorldCoin, which scans people's irises to prove that they are unique? Um, you know, what does it mean in this day and age when the databases for 23andMe are mm-hmm. leaked online and people can know all sorts of, you know, what is medical and private information about you? So, you know, these are really contemporary issues that they don't they don't go back in, you know, that we have. Um, we've opened Pandora's box too, and we're going to have to deal with what could be some uh, pretty frightening implications. Uh, I'm confident, however, that I'm thankful rather that blockchain technology exists because it is at least a proven or semi-proven path forward to 
confirming one's identity and allowing them control, allowing us control over our identity, over other personal identifying information. And we see that use case all the time. We see it all the time. It is such an important part of crypto art. It's such an important part of crypto. Obviously, the cypherpunk manifesto did not directly lead to the creation of cryptocurrency, but we can see these values, which are widespread in the programming world and the engineering world, as far as I can tell, we've seen those play out so powerfully um, and continue to do so in the past couple of um, years. I mean, I'm thinking of OpenSea deleting um, artists from certain countries from its platform. Even something as small as that, where, you know, the know your customer tactics have been led to, led to you know, victimization and retaliation against individuals. So that's the Cypherpunk Manifesto by Eric Hughes, written in 1993. Huge implications on everything we do today. Um, definitely one of the, to me, most influential texts for why crypto and crypto art developed the ethos that it did. Any last words you'd like to say about um, Eric Hughes's work today? No. Other than, you know, I think he's still alive and salute to Eric and, you know, all the other cypherpunks out there who laid uh, a lot of the foundational thinking uh, for these evolutions. Yeah. Shout out Eric Hughes. Eric, if you're listening, please come on the podcast. We'd love to talk to you about the manifesto. Um, this has been the first part of our four-part miniseries on the foundational text of crypto art. If you liked what you heard, please give us a follow or a subscription or give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get these podcasts. Please uh, give our Substack a follow at uh, museumofcryptoart.substack.com. We have a column that drops weekly every Wednesday. Uh, please check out what we're doing on Twitter. And we're really excited to have you here with us on this almost painfully educational journey uh, throughout these next couple of episodes. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much. We hope to see you in the next episode and uh, we'll talk to everyone real soon. Thanks, y'all. This has been another episode of Current Events with Max and Coborn. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Coborn, as always, for being my co-host. Our intro music was composed by Julian Brangold, so a big thank you to him. And once again, thank you to all of you for being with us. We'll be back soon with another episode of Current Events. So long.